nonpartisan multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight, we take a look at an ever-growing, unstoppable force that is changing the face of the entertainment industry forever. It's called the Internet. In an age where digital downloading has become the delivery method of choice for most consumers of music, movies, TV, and games, what are the challenges and opportunities faced by the traditional Hollywood business model? Recently, Zocalo and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages hosted a panel discussion led by John Healy of the Times editorial board. His guests represent various facets of the industry. Yair Landau is president of Sony Pictures Digital Entertainment, a unit created by Sony Pictures to develop Internet outlets for its entertainment catalog. Eric Garland is the CEO of Big Champagne, a market research company that specializes in tracking the downloading and spending habits of the millions who get their entertainment online. And Michael Newman is deputy editorial page editor at the Los Angeles Times. We begin with an introduction from John Healy. I just want to throw out very quickly a couple of um, things that have been happening recently and and things that I think illustrate why we're talking about this topic. Today, CBS announced that it was putting Survivor episodes online for $2 through CBS.com, not through an intermediary. So it has a complete vertical integration there from creation to distribution. Uh, The network is also podcasting As the World Turns, which I'm sure most of you are subscribers to, and selling primetime hits and and oldies through Google at uh, $2 a pop. ABC and NBC, meanwhile, and their cable networks are selling shows on iTunes. Warner Brothers uh, very soon will be starting uh, to stream out-of-circulation TV shows through AOL, uh, and that's going to be advertiser-supported. It's not free. It's free. It's not uh, pay-per-view. Uh, Fox has been experimenting with uh, Mobisodes, uh, little clips that you watch on your cell phones uh, when you're not sending email. And uh, we just saw the launch of a service called Vongo, which uh, is uh, bringing uh, subscription uh, uh, TV to the Internet, essentially. Uh, so you have all those things. I mean, there's, that's just a, a small sampling of all the activity you, you've seen recently in, in the distribution through the Internet and through uh, Internet protocol um, uh, means at the same time there's a traditional thing uh, traditional in the internet sense something that's been going on for a long time movies are being distributed distributed through the internet um, let me see the uh, Munich screener was available online for free as of January 30th the Capote screener uh, as of January 19th good night and good luck uh, all these are for free uh, January 5th in DVD format uh, January 13th crash uh, back in May Brokeback Mountain as of January 19th. I just picked those five at random. Um, Also, uh, if you look at the music industry, which has had a bit more experience with the Internet, uh, they're all trailblazer, as it were, in in terms of putting their stuff online or having it put online for them. Um, They are... uh, uh, In 2005, they had uh, uh, a 7.2% drop in album sales, 8% drop in CD sales, but... Album sales was uh, down 7.2%. Um, they had a, an enormous growth in paid digital downloads, uh, something like 134% year-over-year growth in, in um, album-length uh, downloads. Now, that cut the loss uh, about in half. Uh, and if you look at the, the, the trend lines, you can, you can imagine seeing a, a crossover point where the, the, the total amount of revenue could conceivably be greater. So it's not clear whether that's a, that's a sob story or, or something to be hopeful about. 
Uh, ringtones alone worth more than 600 million. Downloads worth more than 500 million. Um, so uh, it's a it's it's a mixed story, um, and I was hoping that maybe we'll start with Eric talking a little bit about what you see in terms of what people are doing online, the kinds of things that uh, uh, in terms of traffic, the kind of volumes that you're seeing, the types of files being shared. Give us give us your picture. Yeah, I mean you've you've started us off on the on the right wrong path, John, when you point <laughs> out that what people are doing primarily is taking a lot of things that don't belong to them. And that trend, uh, despite the, the relatively recent intervention of the Motion Picture Association and their constituency and the, the very long-running uh, battle that the recording industry, uh, the RIAA and their constituency, have, uh, have pursued legally, legislatively, and, and of course through their education campaigns, they have been trying for the better part of uh, six years now since the original Napster file sharing application was at its peak to dissuade people from doing this, to get people to go back to the record store online or off uh, and buy something rather than just passing it around amongst themselves for free. And of course, the, the greatest challenge that they face today, and I'm, I'm talking for the moment uh, about recorded music as opposed to uh, as opposed to Hollywood, as, as we're directed to talk about here, but specifically about recorded music, the challenge today is not so much that people continue to take these things, uh, these, these popular songs, without paying for them. The challenge is that even as they begin to pay for them, they have unbundled what was a very lucrative product for decades. And, and whether you call that product a compact disc or a cassette tape uh, or an LP, uh, that bundle has really represented uh, the, the backbone of the recording industry for many decades. Singles have been popular along the way, but the industry has always done everything in its power uh, to direct people back to the bundle because, quite frankly, it's very difficult to make money on a single song, whether it was being sold as a cheap piece of vinyl for less than 25 cents uh, or now uh, at, at Apple's iTunes store for less than a dollar. And so I think that you know, while it is true that people continue very stubbornly uh, to, to pass this media around, to share these uh, popular songs without paying for them, what troubles me and what we'll want to talk about later uh, is that as you migrate these people away from the, the free and, and, and pirate market, into models that look like the iTunes model, there really is a replacement effect here. In other words, it seems very clear that we have an appetite uh, for music that at, at a certain point reaches saturation. I mean, you, you may be inclined in the 21st century to discover more music and to buy more music than you did in the good old days, but the limiting factor is still the 24 hours in the day, and you only have so many of those hours to devote to music in an active way. Individual people are buying a $300, $400 device, and then they're stocking it with about $10 worth of music per year. But if you bought something 10 times in a year in 1996, you spent $150 or close to it because every one of those purchases carried a retail value of about $14 to $17. So well, it's the same replacement happening in terms of people – who are downloading legitimately, downloading less illegitimately? Are you seeing as the uh, music downloads through uh, the online stores rise, 
that there is a diminution of file sharing behavior on music at all? The recording industry likes to think of the marketplace in terms of uh, white hats and black hats. There are those of us sitting in the audience tonight who know that we have to pay for intellectual property, and there are those of us who, in the secrecy of our dorm rooms or our homes, uh, take what doesn't belong to us without paying for it. And they think of that as a marketplace of, of customers and thieves. And so when you hear the criticism from time to time that in all of this litigation, the recording industry has really been suing its customers, they argue persuasively that they're not suing their customers at all. They're suing people who are stubbornly refusing to be their customers and are stealing from them. And, and the stronger correlation is between people who have discovered online music in all of its forms, meaning sometimes they pay for it and sometimes they don't, but they've figured out how to use one of these iPods, they are wired, they are savvy enough to acquire music in this way. Sometimes they pay, sometimes a friend emails them a song, or they, they get a song on uh, AOL's Instant Messenger from a buddy on their buddy list, or they use a file sharing network to take a song for free. Eh, they might even argue or, or rationalize that by saying, I went to the iTunes store and they didn't have that song. Or the song I was looking for wasn't available to me. But it seems like the correlation is between people who have discovered online music. And that, in fact, the marketplace is most sharply divided between those of us who buy CDs and those of us who increasingly get our music online. Yeah, you're, why don't we uh, talk a little bit about what you found in terms of what people are willing to pay for online I think people are willing to pay for anything online I, I think that um, I think that the big issue and, and I think touched on this is that fundamentally the internet shifts the power to the consumer and and fundamentally what you have is you did have a situation where throughout the history of recorded music consumers were forced to buy music in a package that was determined by the labels. And what the Internet did is it provided mass technology for people to consume music as they chose to. I think you see similar type effect with other PC-based technology like TiVo in terms of decoupling network packaging of how you consume your television shows. And ultimately, you see that flowing through in these different download uh, experiments that you see going on across the board, some of which you mentioned. I think that ultimately, and, and we're actually the iTunes lost Desperate Housewives deal was really kind of the official starters gone on this. Ultimately, I think you'll see pretty much all forms of traditional packaged entertainment available for consumption on uh, pay-per-view, pay-to-own, and subscription basis through network devices, be they, your, be they a network device that's at your PC, whether it's a portable device off your PC, whether it's an alternative form of networking to your television set, or, or like your BlackBerry, it's some sort of alternative wireless access. So our, our own experience is the early adopters, the, the, the people who set aside the traditional early adoption market, which in all technology is porn. All of the different pay models and all of the different alternative ownership models and download models are all available on porn. And all of them will migrate to legitimate media as, as the people who produce the product become comfortable with it, not consumers, because clearly consumers are already comfortable with it and already comfortable consuming it in an inferior quality format at whatever file sharing 
service they they happen to go to or or even if they just get a bootleg email so what in our experience basically where people started paying the most earliest is people who are most tech savvy and most interactive and that's in the games business and what you've really seen is in the in what used to be a significant segment of the game business the pc games business you've seen a whole scale migration of that business to online where essentially if you go to your local electronics boutique or GameStop and you go to the PC aisle, there is almost no game that is for sale there that is not a networked game. There is essentially no non-networked game market in the PC space. And we're starting to see that evolution in the game space. Most recently with the Xbox 360 half of the people who managed to get an Xbox 360, and that was a fairly limited number of people, um, but half <laughs> of those you. people subscribed to Xbox Live. And so you, you see the migration that basically once there is a networked alternative in the games space, people are willing to pay. And in, and in that space, we've, we've uh, been very active in the subscription space, but you see a lot of evolving models where um, there's pay-per-use and there's pay-per-upgrade because when it's available, I mean, you look at it, something like The Office, which is, you know, Steve Carell's become a bit a star, but it's by no means a hit show. And the, their ability to basically generate $2 million in revenue on, on what is a second-tier show from a rating standpoint is indicative that there's going to be a lot of niche consumption of people basically going out and buying what they want that they can't get in some sort of scheduled manner. You're listening to Zocalo as we present a panel discussion on Hollywood and the Internet. We just heard from Yeir Landau, president of Sony Pictures Digital Entertainment. Also on the panel are Eric Garland of market research company Big Champagne and Michael Newman and John Healy, both of the Los Angeles Times editorial board. We'll be right back after this. This is Larry Mantle, hoping you're having a wonderful President's Day weekend and inviting you to join us for our next Air Talk Monday morning at 10 here on 89.3 KPECC. We'll talk with historian Thomas Fleming about his new book, Washington's Secret War, The Hidden History of Valley Forge. We'll also talk with Joshua Wolfshank about his book on Lincoln's melancholy and Timothy Egan, who's written a fascinating book on the Dust Bowl and its history. All those topics and more Monday's Air Talk. There's been a lot of talk about whether President Bush overstepped the law, asking the NSA to listen in on conversations, but he wasn't the first president to push the legal envelope. Well, I don't feel when I was president I was secreted. I I ignored habeas corpus, but I didn't do that secretly. Hi, I'm Kitty Feldy. On Monday, President's Day, a conversation with Abraham Lincoln, or at least an actor who's been playing him for more than a decade. That's Monday at 2, right here on 89.3 KPCC. Hi, I'm Zadie Smith, author of The Autograph Man and White Teeth. You can become a member of 89.3 KPCC online any day or any time. Simply visit kpcc.org and select the membership level that's right for you. By pledging online, you save time and administrative costs. That's kpcc.org. Thanks. KPCC reaches a large, active, intelligent audience. 
To learn how your organization or business can reach that audience, call Sandy at 213-621-3592. Scientists are studying the effects of climate change in extreme alpine environments. We know from the fossil record that plants move up and down mountains with changes in temperature. National Geographic Radio Expeditions travels to China's eastern Himalayas. I'm Renee Montaigne. We begin a three-part series tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, cultural forum for the new L.A. Let's continue with our discussion on Hollywood's reaction to the age of digital downloading. We begin with a question from moderator John Healy of the Los Angeles Times editorial board. I'm wondering, you can find any TV show online for free through the peer networks, any one of them. So why would uh, people be willing to pay and why are they showing that they're willing to pay for things like Lost instead of just fishing them out of the the great Internet ocean for free? I I think the first answer is the device, frankly. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, I do think that having a portable device and having the, the, the device and the ease of use. I mean, the, the, the thing that the combination of the iTunes store and, and the iPod and your ability to basically just show up, click on an episode of Lost and have it downloaded onto your device and then have it and carry it with you is, is really what people are paying for. They're paying for the quality user experience. I, I saw... Um, Iger speak at, at something like this recently, and, and he noted that basically they didn't put the shows on ABC.com. They put them on iTunes and obviously had the larger agenda that he was setting up with that. But he, was, but he also said, we put it on there because it had a better user experience, and that's where the users actually wanted to download it. But I still have a hard time understanding why anyone would want to watch a TV show on an iPod. How much do you travel? <laughs> Not enough to do that. <laughs> I think that you know one one interesting thing here is, and it goes back to you know the the poor music industry, which has been so beaten about the face and neck by this thing. But it it almost seems like there's an inverse effect here, in that music uh, always commanded this relatively premium price point. You know, to to buy a popular song ten years ago really did cost you 15 or $16. I mean, there might have been two songs on the 12-song CD that you wanted, but for the most part, there was one, and it cost you $15. And the effect of the Internet to date on the music industry has been to render the, the price point somewhere between zero pennies and 99 pennies for that song. But then you take television, which has always been, in terms of its perceived value, free. Right. Even if you are a a pay cable subscriber, when you watch a program on television, you are not consciously aware of outlaying cash for that experience. It's free. And yet you put that free content in the iTunes store and the perceived value is, yeah, that's worth a couple of bucks. And, And I think there are you know, we could spend the whole night talking about why that is true and why it's not true. Uh, in terms of recorded music, but I think a couple of the of the core reasons that that people express again and again and again when we talk about this issue is that the deal with Hollywood and with broadcast television has always been okay. In other words, we do not have generations of cumulative uh, displeasure when we think about those industries. Yet 
the music industry seems to have worked uh, that that leverage, you know, taken advantage and exploited uh, that bundle uh, so well for so long. That do, do you think it's because they forced me to buy fifteen songs? Yeah, I do. I think it's because you know you, you spent years and and you know and, and your kids did this maybe and your parents did this maybe. You spent years hearing a song that you liked and thinking I'd like to hear that song some more. Going out and spending a lot of money to acquire it and then feeling disappointed because the package, the bundle wasn't very good. And you tired of that song quickly and it made it from the end dash of your car to the floorboards of your car to the trunk of your car and finally ended up in a milk crate down by the curb at a, at a yard sale. And because of that, when Napster allowed people to freely acquire and cherry pick just those songs that they wanted and have them in the MP3 format that they could then do whatever they wanted with. It, it was like this release valve, I think, on a great deal of marketplace frustration. Couldn't that happen with TV, though? I, I think um, season five of West Wing when there was only one good episode, you know, I mean, where people will go, and it's really a matter of information. Of, well, I think it it will happen with with TV eventually, but I also think that you know part of where the the, the two buck price point comes from, and and part of where the motion picture industry and television industry has appropriately understood value is TV is TV seasons on DVD. And and it, it's a phenomenon that doesn't get a lot of hype, but it's actually become a, a, a fairly substantial market and a yeah. huge part of the economic equation on television shows. And you don't see people saying, I don't think a TV season is worth 30 bucks or 40 bucks." And you look at it and you go, and now I'll offer you one of those for 2 bucks, And you go, well, that kind of makes sense. I had 20 to 24 episodes and I paid 40 bucks for that and I paid 2 bucks for this. And, you know, it's, it's an hour's worth of programming. It's not an individual song. Having it on your own schedule and having it consumable where you want to consume it, my own experience is people either believe it or they don't. So your question, I think I, I work with a lot of people who don't think portable video is ever going to be meaningful. And then I work with other people who basically have every single UMD movie ever made for their PSP when they travel around the world and they watch everything on that portable device. There's a generational gap between them generally, but but I think that you have a lot of people who basically don't know a world without a cell phone, and their view is that everything that they consume should be portable and on demand on their schedule, and yeah, so it's on a smaller screen, and then when they want to watch it at home, they'll watch it at home, but on the small screen, they own it and control it. You mentioned that there's no blowback on, on DVD television. And, and and I think you're right that certainly you don't hear people saying episode four was weak. I wish I hadn't bought the bundle. But there is increasingly one area where I think there's a lot of pushback on, on seasons of, of DVD television. And that is um, of, of a show that you are really enamored of that fall. And you look at it on the shelf three seasons later. Chances are you've realized by that time that you will probably never revisit that show on DVD. And I actually think this is good news uh, for television because what it means is the nature of the relationship that the consumer wants to have with that content is, is momentary. It's fire and forget. I mean, it's linear, so you'll stick with it for a few seasons. But you know, even, even if your favorite film of all time, you know, Citizen Kane, is on the shelf, I, I'll, I'll bet you, I will make you a wager that you won't watch it 25 times before you're on your deathbed. Right? If your three-year-old likes it, you will watch it 25 times. 
And that is the Disney exception. I mean, that is the exception to the rule. The exception is seasonal, like holiday content and kids' fair. But, but television is, for the most part, uh, a, a one-time relationship. And because of that, I think you can sell it again and again and again. Yeah, but, but I, I think that, that one of the things that DVD shows, and I actually think that this, is, this ties to the iTunes experience, and, and people like ownership. People like control of content, and I and I actually think this is a huge kind of shift, and it ties to consumer empowerment. Kids who grow up today and, and and basically don't know a world where they couldn't have any movie they wanted, any time they wanted. When we grew up, basically, you saw it in the theater, and then you saw it when it eventually got broadcast on television, and then. Eventually, the VCR came out, and you could potentially buy it, but at a hundred bucks, nobody really bought anything right. other than the the Disney product that got priced at twenty bucks. Today, there isn't a kid out there, not just in America but in the world, who doesn't believe that they have a right to own own any piece of content they want and consume it anytime they want. And so, I I think a lot the value proposition isn't the repeat viewing. I agree with you. The value proposition is. I own that. I own that season of, of twenty four or or that Seinfeld. Okay, the value proposition of Seinfeld is I can watch that yada yada episode in five minute increments anytime I want for the rest of my life. If somebody comes over and I want to show them my favorite little George Costanza moment, I own that. It isn't just the internet empowerment. It's it's the whole of digital technology empowering consumer ownership and shifting the whole nature of the consumption equation. There is a very real gap, though, between what people say and what they do in this regard because I will tell you this. you know, We, we have spent six years looking at about uh, 20 million people in this country, I'm sure including some of you in this room, in terms of, of your interaction with content online. And if you were talking about music, I would wholeheartedly agree with you. People hoard music. I mean, the average free music downloader has acquired hundreds, close to 1,000 songs for free. That's more than, than the average person ever purchased in his lifetime in terms of recorded music. And they hoard that music to the point where it gets carried over from a computer, a Windows box, to a Macintosh. It gets backed up on a hard drive. It gets burned to CDs. They keep it in three places. But when we look at television and feature film, overwhelming majority of people who take mu- movies for free and television for free on the internet watch it and delete it. And I think that you're right that there's an entitlement mentality there but there's also an expectation that hey, the whole world of content is out there and available to me anytime I want it. I don't have to keep every episode of every show on a hard drive because if somebody comes over and wants to see yada 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 I'll just grab it. I think a lot of people who steal movies who have a quality experience go out and buy it. I've also seen in my own experience that a lot of people who like the movie in the theater go out and steal it the next day because I had this experience seeing Matrix Reloaded and I came out and I was behind this young Asian couple and guy turned to his girlfriend and said, all right, let's go home and download it. And they'd just come out of the theater and they really liked the movie and they wanted to have it then. I, when you were talking about blowback where I thought you were going to go and where I think we as an industry will get blowback is Windows management. Mm. Part of the reason people steal our product is because they want to own it and control it the day we put it out in the theaters. 
and they still don't like the fact that we say to them, you're going to have to wait until we put it out on DVD. I mean, there's a demand that you're stoking. I, I remember thinking after I saw Batman Returns, if there had been somebody selling the DVD on the street out front, I would have bought it. Three months later, or six months later, when they finally put it out, I'd lost interest. Uh, some people argue but, that but, there's a but piracy. But the question is, if it was available, would you have bought the DVD and not gone to the movie? Or rented, or God forbid, rented the DVD and not gone to the movie. But or even mean, worse, waited, uh, clicked on your Netflix subscription and had it, had it in your mailbox for 35 cents, and then Batman Returns wouldn't have been so, made. So, but, so you talk about this sense of entitlement. Is, do you see your job as to fulfill it or to frustrate it? I, mean, <laughs> I, I see my job as to make our content available for you to consume in any way you want. I want, I want to continue creating great content and empowering the consumption of that content. But I'm, you know, the reason I'm on this panel is I'm not representative of, you know, the MPAA and a lot of people who, you know, would give their last breath to say they get to control how you consume the product. I, I think. Ultimately, technology will empower you and everybody else in this room and everybody else around the world to tell us how they want to consume the content. And we're on that path. It's just a question of when it reaches the scale where it transforms our business to the same extent it's transformed music. Why, why should you care? Um, we're talking about the windows. I mean, the industry makes more money now off of DVDs and videos than it does in the, in the movie theater. What Hollywood has done successfully is it's embraced technology by slicing up the salami and, and, and doling it out at different points in time. So it was able to embrace television in a later window than theatrical. And it was able to embrace home video in the window between theatrical and television. It was able to embrace pay in a window earlier than broadcast. And so what happens is, on, on average, a typical consumer ends up paying multiple times and consuming multiple times. And, and while people don't necessarily um, watch it 25 times, actually most people who watch a movie on pay television or even on broadcast television have seen it in the theater, and a lot of them own it on DVD. And it comes on and they watch it again. And that's kind of the, the large-scale economic model of the giant Batman Returns types of movies today. If all of that collapses, it, it, it's unclear what that's going to mean to our economic equation. And that's why everybody's kind of dancing around it because if you could buy Batman Returns coming out of the theater, you could buy Batman's Returns without going into the theater and then what does that mean to box office? And then how, everything else keys off that. And I think we're dancing around it because it's not if, it's when, right? And, and the question, I mean, this is, this is not rhetorical. The question I have is I think you're right with respect to John Healy. That's a risk, right, that he just puts it in his Netflix queue. But when we talk to kids who are the most active downloaders, right, the people most likely to take this stuff, they all profess that it's really important to them going to the movies and that they wish they could go more, would that it weren't so expensive and the popcorn. And they gripe about all the usual things. But the and question is, is it really a risk that if, if on day and date you had all the options that 
that many people in that core demo would stop going to the movies because I've always just thought intuitively that that's not really a risk. That well, but but you're describing those people as the core demo. As I look out in this <clears throat> audience, they they're not in that demo. And if all we did was make movies for you know eight to fourteen year olds, a lot of these people would be really bored. Well, it and, looks like you are. But I mean, my uh, multiplex. <laughs> well, at your multiplex. I, I don't know. I, I I look at those five random films that John listed before, and not a single one of them is made for that demo. Hey, and and I think that actually the interesting thing about those films is only one of them has a substantial budget. And, and part of the reason is is it's pretty hard to justify the economic spend for a major adult drama today because adults don't go out to the theater as much. And so you're missing that box office window. The DVD compression has already impacted it. I think that you have a lot of adults today who basically say, I'll wait for it on DVD. And, and then the time, you're missing that revenue stream. But by the time the DVD arrives, the excitement's gone. I think you, that argument could just as easily be applied to what um, Mark Cuban and Steven Soderbergh are doing, saying, look, we've got a limited amount of marketing dollars. We're not going to try and do it twice. We're going to market the movie once. We're going to try and get as much um, uh, press about it as we can to get the free marketing too. And we're going to put it all out at the same time. So that people have a chance to buy it when it's fresh. I, I'm just curious. And by the way, we'll be inviting you to, to ask questions too shortly and you'll need to come up here to the microphone. But how many of, of you folks don't go to the movies because you can't? I mean it's not because you don't want to. It's because you can't. Okay. No parents in that audience. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right. Three of you. Um, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm extrapolating from, uh, excessively from, from my circumstances, but you know, Eric said... Anecdotal data is I, tough. I, I, I would love to go to more movies, um, but uh, I know that there's been experiences in other countries where they've collapsed the windows and they've seen disastrous effects on the box office. But I just wonder, if you're doing it with the right movie in the United States, whether you might not actually get a more efficient marketing impact because you've got the one big marketing push and people who want to see Christopher Nolan's work on a big screen, like I do, will go to the movies. And if they come out loving it, they'll buy it right away because they've got that enthusiasm. And the ones who can't get out of the house but are still interested in the movie can buy it right away. I, I think eventually we'll have tests that are kind of valid examples of that. I think mm -hmm. notwithstanding Mark Cuban's protestations about the way he was treated by NATO or whomever else, you know what? Not very many people went out to go see Bubble over the weekend. And in fact, not many people chose to see it on HDNet either. It just wasn't that compelling a piece of content. Right. Right. And that's at the end of the day the stuff that always survives, right? So I mean my ultimate belief is that a hit is a hit. If it's a great if it's a great piece of work, it will manage its way through the upheaval of the collapse of the windows. But I, but I think that a lot of work won't. And I, and I think that it's it, – I, I, the, the parallel to the music industry is I think it's going to be a lot harder to be a rock star in today's world. And you know what? And you're not going to make tens of millions of dollars just recording music. Today, rock stars basically tour their butts off because that's where they make their money because they don't sell CDs anymore. And it's a lot harder to become a, a top-selling act. You know, the top recording acts that, that you printed in the L.A. Times were all, like, guys who were older than 50. 
Eh? I mean, there wasn't anybody in that list who was like, you know, who just broke out last year online. It's it's the the fundamentals of becoming a successful music artist have changed, and I think is, is the, that, why is that a problem? I, I, or is it? I'm not saying it's a problem. It's a change. I mean, you look at it. It's 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 you know, it's it's kind of capitalism at its cruelest on on some senses, and it's but it's kind of an economic reality. It's going. It's going to be hard to get rich making music. It is telling, though, that I, I feel like I just read that same piece in the L.A. Times talking about screen stars. They're all graying at the temples. Where is the next generation of real rock stars in the film industry? I think it's the next generation of movie stars are going to find it hard to uh, build the same sort of personal wealth that this past generation of movie stars built. Because I think what's going to become harder and harder when those windows collapse is for us to make $100 million-plus movies. But if I'm watching it on my iPod, my production values aren't very <laughs> meaningful to me. I, you, know what, I, you know what? If you're watching it on your iPod, you'd still rather have Tom Cruise or Tom Hanks on there than Tom I don't know. Of course, you may not be able to tell if it's Tom Cruise or Tom Hanks. <laughs> Going back to the parallel, um, I, uh, there's a claim that Netflix makes that uh, because it's internet-based uh, and it can uh, get the power of databases involved, it can help films find their audience in a way that the analog uh, methods of marketing could not do. So I'm wondering, and, and they say this is a particular, particular boon to indie films and other films with small marketing budgets. What we've seen online for, or what we've seen in the past few years in the music industry is certainly showing the rise of indies. The, the total indie market share this past year rose to 27%, which is more than anybody but Universal. Um, so more than Warner, more than Sony, more than um, uh, EMI. So uh, is that same thing possibly coming to movies as a consequence of the Internet? And, and couldn't that be a very good thing? I, I think it's coming to the movies as a consequence of the Internet, but also as a consequence of the proliferation of high-quality digital video equipment. I think it's now possible for the average person to put together a movie in the same, almost in the same way it is for the average person to, to put together a band. So if, if, if you play guitar really well and you hook up with a bunch of guys or, or gals and, and they all know how to make music, you could put together a quality garage band. I think if you, if you basically pick up a decent DV cam and you spend a lot of time playing around with it, you could become an indie filmmaker, and eventually the internet does provide you with an opportunity to mass distribute it. It's not there yet, but I think that you'll, you'll, see, you'll start seeing more and more of, of that basically, I shot a film, I couldn't get a distributor, but I posted it online, and then the question will be, how do I get anybody to know anything about it? How do I get you to actually consume it? Right, which is where the preference engines come in, like Netflix. Yep. You're tuned to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Our topic tonight is how the entertainment industry is taking on the Internet challenge. We'll continue with our panelists, Yair Landau of Sony Pictures Digital Entertainment, Eric Garland of Big Champagne, and Michael Newman and John Healy, both from the Los Angeles Times editorial board. We'll be back right after this short break. Scientists are studying the effects of climate change in extreme alpine environments. We know from the fossil record that plants move up and down mountains with changes in temperature. National Geographic Radio Expeditions travels to China's eastern Himalayas 
I'm Renee Montaigne. We begin a three-part series tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. Next time on The World, the Holocaust is living history for many Israelis. Some of their Arab neighbors are ignorant of it or even deny the Holocaust happened. We don't have a real study in Arabic about the Holocaust, so most Egyptian people don't know about the real history. I'm Lisa Mullins. We travel to Egypt for Arab views of the Holocaust next time on The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo. We'll continue now with our panel discussion, Can Hollywood Survive the Internet? Hosted by Zocalo and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages and recorded at the Culver City Studios. Once again, moderator John Healy. If you do have a question, please trot on the feet of the people beside you and come on over here and uh, step to the podium. Otherwise, uh, my banalities will continue. Let her rip. Okay. Um, I am curious about another, uh, a bunch of other things, but uh, t- why is there no way today to have an iTunes for feature film? Or why isn't not that there's no way to do it? Why don't we have an iTunes for feature films? Anybody? <laughs> I think that the motion picture industry has been slow to learn some of the music industry's lessons and has been overly restrictive in what it's been to date allowed people to do with um, movies online. I think uh, we're all working on that, but I've been saying that at panel discussions like this for three or four years, so um, we're still working on that. I do believe that, as I said, the lost Desperate Housewives downloads is, is a real starter's pistol in, in the regard of all sell-through of, of uh, visual content. And so I think in the coming year, year and a half, you'll, you'll start seeing more and more film downloads available as iTunes cuts deals, Google cuts deals, etc. I think there's there's good news, bad news, in that I really think that it is true, as it was true for the music industry, that it's always a good day to start until the day that it's too late. And in the case of the music industry, that really was the Napster problem. And, and, and the problem there, the social problem, the really profound seismic shift, occurred because most people did not have their first great experience with online music at iTunes or at Sony Connect or at Real Rhapsody or in any of those legitimate marketplaces. Most people had their first great experience on Napster in a pirate marketplace. And it was great. And they fell in love with it by the tens of millions. And the good news is, despite the fact that Dan Glickman will talk about the Napsterization of Hollywood The good news is that in reality, that has not really occurred. Most people who sit here today have not taken feature films off the Internet without paying for them. In fact, while there is a fast-growing and really voracious audience of people who do, by the numbers, it is nothing like the threat that the music industry faces today. Even on college campuses? Even on college campuses. There are far more people at a college campus who download music on a regular basis than television or film. Okay. And, And that proportionally is changing. And that's why I say there will come a day where that will no longer be true. And I think it's an incredibly important clock to beat. Because if most of us have a truly great experience in the legitimate marketplace, then the the pirate market is trying to steal share away from the legitimate market. And today, 
Just the opposite is true. We're trying to win people back from piracy and get them back into the store. And that's a tremendous challenge that Hollywood still at this late date does not have to face. Well, I wonder to what extent uh, is the music industry hurt by and the movie industry helped by the standardization issue. In music, MP3 very early was out there as a standard that not only could work for all the computers but all, all the devices. So people knew what to build to. In in video, there isn't anything like that. I mean, there's Sony PSP and the iTunes video or the iPod video both use MPEG-4, a standard, but they use different versions. So th- there isn't a, a lingua franca yet uh, for movies. And th- that could be both something that's delaying piracy and also holding up the legitimate industry. It's dual-edged, but – but I'll emphasize the opportunity there, which is that the music industry has been trying to unseat the MP3, which is the de facto standard format. Right. Most music in the world today is not acquired on compact disc or at iTunes, much less iTunes. Most music acquired today is in the MP3 format, which means that we've been working for the better part of six years to unseat a standard. Hollywood's not trying to do that. There is no standard. We have a question or three. If you wouldn't mind, please identify yourself and, and let us know what acts you have to grind. Hi, my name is Terry. Um, one of the issues that, that I find interesting that this has opened up is a communication between the artist and the audience. Um, George Lucas, on his, I think, his um, Star Wars website, has um, a spot where he actually posts the movies that people have made as either parodies or other takeoffs on Star Trek. So it goes back to your whole indie thing, because apparently some of these are pretty spectacular in a way, uh, some of the techniques. So I'm wondering, have you given any thought about how this is going to open up the ability of an artist to communicate directly with their audience? I, I think that um, there, I mean, to, to some extent, you you could say that, that the the two largest content phenomenon of the last uh, couple of years would be blogging and podcasting. And both of them are basically, whether you call somebody who, whether you call that art or not, you know, the, the creator certainly could. And so I, I would say I think you've really seen a lot of burgeoning art forms in where people are using the medium in a new way to communicate directly with the audience. And I think we're just at the beginning of it. I think you'll, you'll see video podcasting some people will watch it. You, you might not, but I think there will be people on who will watch it. And, and I think you'll see video blogging metastasize into all sorts of interesting things. Somehow, though, I don't see the DGA lining up in favor of having snippets of a work uh, shown in a, in a uh, video blog or a video podcast or having people, uh, despite what uh, George Lucas thinks about fan film, having people do their own version of... Um, <laughs> the possibilities for Brokeback Mountain are, are endless, but <laughs> I just, I just, I, I think that there. Thank are, you and good night, everyone. <laughs> He's here, He's here I, all week. I just think that, that that there's some within within the the um, filmmaking world there is there is a very powerful force potentially lined up against this very thing. Well, I I think the most powerful force, frankly, is just talent. It takes a lot of hard work and a lot of talent to make a quality motion picture or quality television show. It's easy to shoot a half hour of video. It's it's really hard to tell a really funny good story in a half hour. It's it's really hard to 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 set up a long form nor- narrative that really works that engages the audience, that has you care, that has you empathize, that makes you feel like you went on a journey over that time period. 
and and that's where the bulk of the money ultimately goes in Hollywood is is we pay talented people to create the product, and that's why people keep on consuming it. Um, I hear a lot about mashup culture. Uh, people who want to cut up our movies and repurpose them, reformat them, create new works of art from them on both sides of the argument. Is there really a mashup culture? Are you seeing stats on that? Or is this like the old question, was there really a swing dance craze or was there just a uh, gap commercial? Uh, Yeah, I think the answer to that question really, uh, again, lies in, in conventional wisdom about creators. And that's to say that uh, there, there certainly are are movements there, both in both in music and in film. Um, but this is not a popular pursuit in the way that someone might make a, a podcast just because he likes the sound of his own voice, or writes a blog just because he finds his own life fascinating. I mean, people who enjoy that that level of of creative output and creative control to actually build a creative work, even if it is from the from the bones of, of other works that came before, uh, there are very few people in any community who are moved to do that or much less capable of doing that. So I think I would put that in a different category. I think that that falls in the category of, uh, you know, of the, of the means of production being available to garage bands and to, and to indie filmmakers uh, of very limited means. But there are still very few people in a thousand who are going to seek to do that, much less pull it off. And I'm going to bet that, that it's generational and it's going to be a function of when people have the bits on their hard drives. Um, when I was visiting some friends out in Washington, D.C. a few years ago, um, the, I think, 13 or 14-year-old daughter had been trying to get her folks to buy her a cell phone. And she saw my laptop, the laptop and she said, do you have PowerPoint? And I said, yeah. She said, can I use it? And I said, Knock yourself out. And 20 minutes later, she had a PowerPoint presentation on why she should have a cell phone. <laughs> and it was multimedia. It was, it was because she was adept at uh, finding media online, snippets that she could incorporate and, and put in the language of her own. Now, I, I'm sure you all have seen the um, trailer that's going around for um, – Sleepless in Seattle, set as a as a suspense thriller. It's it's a fascinating piece of work. It's beautiful, but it's not the kind of thing that that thirteen year olds are doing today. But put the bits on the hard drive, give them access to it, and they will because they can. That that that's my guess. Uh, yes, we have another. I actually have one statement of two questions. Um, I think movies will catch up with music on downloads. I think the main thing right now is, as a consumer, that's complicated. Downloading a movie takes eight hours compared to a song that's 30 seconds. And um, it comes in a raw, a rip. i got to recompress it. i got to recom- do all this technical stuff. You only stuff. know this from your friends, naturally. But I, I think that's, that's part of leading into my question. Have you seen con- uh, consumers also grow out of that state? Because as a consumer myself, as a kid, sure, I didn't have the money. And now that I've kind of grown up and started, you know, my own career and making money, now I'm like, that's too much hassle. It's convenient just to buy it now. It's not convenient to download it, not, not pirated at least. Yeah. 
I mean, I think the easy example is, is the iTunes marketplace, which is a little bit gray at the temples. Proportionally, there are a lot more people older than you shopping at iTunes than there are people younger than you, right. which is surprising because the, the general conception that we have of iTunes is that it's this very youthful <clears throat> market. And, and it's really not. And it started with the devices, which were first held by people in their 30s and 40s and 50s before they became so ubiquitous that people got them for their kids. And I do have. I, one. I think our our general assessment is that it's, is the bulk of piracy occurs from people who have more time than money. And as soon as you have Which more is, money than time, you make the trade off and you say, "I'm I'm right. going to buy it." And if I could make sort of an an Uber point here, um, I am told that there are uh, tools, software packages that make it. Brain dead simple to now. decompress. Five right, years to, ago, no. To, to, right, but that's just the point. Those right. tools will arrive because the intelligence is in the in terms of PC processing power. It's it has moved to the edge. It is moved to the people, and there are folk, plenty of folk with more time than money, who love to code, and they're going to come up with those those tools inevitably. Earlier, you talked about why DVDs don't come out the same day that the movie is actually out. You briefly talked about that it would affect. The windows and all that stuff. As a consumer, if I'm paying twenty bucks for a DVD or ten for a movie, wouldn't you rather get my twenty bucks than my ten? On on average, I'll get both, and and you'll also subscribe to yeah, HBO, but, and you may watch well, NBC, right, and right. and but, we'll get a piece of all of that in the film, and that's okay. the issue. I guess is, I I feel too the same as him that uh, as a consumer, me, I would more likely watch it in a theater and go, that's great, I'd like to have it in my collection and go buy it than I w- would three months later. But that's... And I, I think that's where we're ultimately headed. Right. But it, it'll take a bit. Time. Let me ask the panel, and, and this will probably be what we'll wrap up on because I think we're running out of time. Um, what should the entertainment industry be doing online that it isn't doing today? Um, but let's start with Michael as a, as a consumer. What would you like to see them do that, that you haven't seen them do yet a bigger screen for my iPod <laughs> no, I think uh, that last questioner got got to a little bit of it which is that movies are sort of the the you know definition of mass appeal mass audience and when you go to smaller devices and to different devices you know your audience has to get more expertise and it's not something I associate with going to the movies or listening to music or reading a book. I mean, I don't want to have to work to do that. And so as soon as that, you know, level comes down so I can do it easily, I think it will take off, but not until then. So I think it's more of the device end than it is the content. I think ultimately all sorts of shifts will happen in, in Windows and a lot of other things like that. I, I, I guess as a starting point, I'd like to be able to get everything I get on DirecTV online. The traditional analog cable monopoly should come down from a basic perspective of anything that you get through a closed system, you should be able to get through an open system in the same way. And I think you're starting to see that with some of these tests, but I think we should be moving more rapidly to a situation where it doesn't matter where you are. You can watch what you want and watch at home. Yeah, I mean, I think it's deceptively simple as a parting shot on a panel to say uh, make the content conspicuously available. But I do think that uh, 
just to sort of reiterate what I said earlier, there is still an opportunity here that will be lost. And that opportunity is to create the first great online experiences before the pirate market has offered it to most people. Then you're battling uphill. You're trying to win people back from an experience that they already like. So I, I guess if I had if I had one comment to make, it would be in, in, the, in the carrot and stick equation. And this is something that the entertainment companies like to talk about quite a bit in terms of the online predicament. I would put the emphasis heavily on the carrot. You know, we seem to be we seem to be focusing somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of our energy and, and time and efforts on the stick. And I think that really the opportunity here is all in the carrot. And so if there's one lesson learned from the music industry, I think it should be deterring piracy has to be subservient to building markets. Yair, do you think you have fewer splinters and, and more carrots already? I think we're busy negotiating the carrots, and as and as is the case in the motion picture industry, we spend a lot of time negotiating. So, and I think the the motion picture industry has already made fairly substantial investments in trying to build the carrots. They haven't broken through, but but I don't. But I know that the perspective is our belief is the way we combat piracy around the world is we offer a quality alternative, and we certainly feel that way online and. As, as somebody who basically first first made our movies available for download in an open test in the summer of 1999, I can tell you that it's something Sony Pictures in specific has been investing a lot of time and money in building. Unfortunately, you want to watch a lot of other people's movies online, and we're trying to facilitate that as well. And I would love to see those MovieLink movies on my TV I would love to be able to rent from a big online uh, video jukebox in the sky and get that movie easily to my TV set. And I'll do it for maybe a little premium over regular rental prices and having a, the ability to download it and burn it onto a DVD for the pr- price of a, of a DVD that I'd get a Blockbuster. Uh, I'd pay for that too. I'm still struggling to understand why the entertainment industry or the movie industry in particular hasn't said um, let's go ahead and and let's enable that to happen using the piracy the anti-piracy standard that we did uh, on DVD Um, but I guess that's something that's being negotiated I'd like to thank our panelists very much just to remind you who they are. We have Michael Newman from the LA Times editorial board, Yara Landau from Sony Pictures Digital, Eric Garland from Big Champagne, and I'm John Healy, also from the LA Times editorial board. You've been listening to a panel discussion on Hollywood's response to the digital challenge presented tonight by the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, the Los Angeles Times Editorial Pages, and the Los Angeles Public Library. Our guests tonight were Yair Landau, president of Sony Pictures Digital Entertainment, Eric Garland, CEO of market research company Big Champagne, and Michael Newman from the editorial board of the Los Angeles Times. John Healy, also of the Times Editorial Board, was the moderator. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Special thanks to Semper Law Group, the Los Angeles Times, the James Irvine Foundation, California Endowment, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles for making this program possible. For more information on upcoming events or to listen to past programs, please log on to ZocaloLA.org. 
This program is also available as a podcast at kpcc.org. On our next Zocalo, author Greg Kreitzer.